there's this stigma around the Paralympics and how we're all like such strong, unbreakable people. But the truth is we're just like everybody else. And we have our days and we have our moments and we have our struggles, especially those of us that have went through significant trauma. On June 27th, 2011, Michelle Salt was riding her new motorcycle east on Highway 1 towards Calgary. She was in a horrific accident that medics say she shouldn't have survived, but she did. Welcome to The Safe Haven. I'm your host, Amanda Lytle. The Safe Haven offers a collection of conversations about life's challenges and the pivots that we make in order to keep moving forward. Michelle had hardly digested the fact that her right leg had been amputated 10 inches above her knee when she declared that she was going to be a one-legged fitness model and would compete in the Paralympics. In fact, Michelle hadn't even left the trauma unit and had already called the coaches of the national teams. After five months in the hospital, re-entering life with her new prosthetic challenged Michelle in more ways than the obvious ones, like learning how to walk again. Determined, Michelle went back to work, tackling her new challenges and chasing her Paralympic dreams and World Cup podiums. A recent diagnosis with CTE, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and beginning to open up with her battles on suicidal thoughts, Michelle is an advocate for mental health who is willing to share her stories in order to start those crucial conversations. Having an idea of what she might say, I asked Michelle to recall her biggest pivot day. Well, the, obviously that was the day that I found out that my leg was gone. And I don't know if it was necessarily for me um, the accident and that day that that I hit the guardrail because I don't remember that day. That was, you know, a, a life-changing day for my family. But for me, it was the day I found out that my leg was amputated above the knee. Mm-hmm. And, and coming out of that space in Nadine Overwater's article, when she talks about how it was someone in your room that was talking about Paralympics. And I love how in the article, she wrote about how your perspective was, yeah, that's the fire that I needed to just keep pushing through to yeah. go from like, what, what was the transition even like between, okay, you're missing over 75% of your leg and you're going to need to go. I mean, that's a steep climb to get from that mentality to, yeah, I want to jump into the Paralympics. Can you kind of elaborate a bit on what that space was like? Yeah, it, it was actually, I think, quite surprising for me that right away I decided I, that's what I wanted to do. I have always been a goal-oriented person, but before my accident, I I want to say I gave up, but I just wasn't really one to follow through. And in my ICU journal, my family had wrote how uh, you know they thought I was the strongest person in the family, and this and that. And I'm like, oh, like I I never saw if anything I saw myself as like the victim. And, you know, I'm. I'm, I'm not strong and I give up and this and that. So for me to have this shift to be like, okay, hey, this is what I'm going to want. That's, this is what I want to do. And to say that with so much intent, it, it, it was like, wow, it really surprised me. Like I, I want this and I want this badly enough that I'm going to make it happen. So it was, it was pretty incredible. You know, when I first told everybody like, okay, you're heavily medicated. Let's come back to this. And I was like, no, this this is what I want. I want to be a one-legged fitness model and I want to be a Paralympian. Like, oh, okay, good. 
and I can imagine that your family would have been like, okay, girlfriend, hold on, you know, let's just, let's figure out how to, how to walk again, you know, let's figure out how you can even navigate through life physically again first. What was that like? Well, that was exactly it. Let's walk before you run. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, something in me just changed. And I think it was mainly because I, I knew that I had a second chance at life. So I reached out to both of the national coaches. Like I had been on the Paralympic website and Greg Westlake came to visit me, who was the para ice hockey um, captain. Um, he's like, you know, go to the website and pick some sports you want to try. And so it's like cycling and snowboarding. These are the sports that I want to go to the Paralympics for. So I reached out to both the national coaches and they're like, wow, this is awesome. Like we love hearing from new athletes, you know, where are you at in your recovery? And I'm like, well, I haven't been casted for a leg yet. They're like, oh, you're, you haven't walked yet. Well, no, I'm still in trauma at Foothills in Calgary. And they're like, uh, okay, well you call us back in probably six months when you're ready and we'll talk then. So I, I was pretty determined, a little premature on my part, but I knew that it was something that I wanted to make happen. That is determination doesn't even hit the mark for that. I mean, you haven't even been casted for a leg and you already have these visions. Now, were you cycling and snowboarding beforehand? Um, I was mountain biking a bit, but yeah, snowboarding was a big thing for me. You know, I started when I was 13 and I grew up in a small town and we had a local hill, Rabbit Hill. And, you know, I worked as a lifty. It was, it was my dream to be a pro snowboarder. So when I knew that my leg was gone and there was an opportunity, I, I figured I would be silly not to jump on it. Mm -hmm. And I also, I knew that I needed a goal to keep myself sane through the almost, well, the five months more than five months that I was in the hospital. Coming out of the hospital and kind of re-entering life as you knew it before your amputation, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced trying to go back to what you thought was normal? Well, that's exactly it. I spent 26 years of my life with two legs. I didn't know what normal was going to look like. And I thought it was going to be a lot easier I'm not going to put that on like my, my hospital staff or physio or anything, but I don't, even as much as they told me, like, it's going to be different. It's going to be hard. There was no way to prepare me for that transition to go home full time without, like I spent five months in the hospital with nurses at my aid anytime I needed them and that assistance. Mm -hmm. And then now I'm home and I, I can't cook for myself because I can't wear my leg longer than five minutes. And my left leg was, still severely damaged. So I couldn't really put a lot of weight on that. And I lived in a bi-level that, you know, my, my bedroom was five stairs up, but the laundry was 20 stairs down. So I couldn't walk down the stairs because I was terrified of my prosthetic. And again, like it, it didn't feel good. It hurt. So I would take my laundry basket and I would dump my clothes and I would take like as much as I could carry with me to the bottom of the stairs and then I'd go back up and I'd sit on my bum and I'd slide down the stairs and go back up and I'd do this until I got all my laundry yeah I remember my mom and dad talking and my mom was in tears because she's like our 26 year old or 27 year old child is on the floor dragging herself around mm -hmm. up and down the stairs because you know she she can't wear her prosthetic so it was 
it was tough for everyone. Were you living with your parents before the accident? No, no, no. I, I moved out when I was 16 and never really went back. So I was living with two girlfriends and, you know, I, I asked for my independence and that was exactly what they gave to me. They were great when I needed them, but they also were like, no, like we're taking a step back and we want you to, to be able to do this on your own and learn how to function as an amputee. Mm-hmm. When you were ready to get back into work, what did that look like? Oh, that was, that was difficult. So I went back to real estate. I'd been a realtor for mm, probably about a year at this point. And I knew that I probably wouldn't be able to do it full time. There was a lot of stairs involved and stairs even to mm-hmm. this day. Are, like, okay, I'll, I'll do it, but mm-hmm. it's not fun and I'm slow. So yeah, I went back after a year and it was, it was pretty difficult. I just, I knew that I, I needed to, to make it happen. And then I went back into sales as a sales rep and, you know, the littlest things like wearing steel toe boots, people don't think about that, but having a five pound shoe mm-hmm. on your prosthetic is exhausting and I can't walk through mud. And so meeting out in the field, like I'd, I'd have days where I just come back to my car and I would ball because I was so tired. My back hurt, you know, I fell on site and everybody's looking at me. And at first I would cover my legs. So people didn't know I was an amputee. It was a hard transition to go back to living a normal life. Mm -hmm. Had you been in any relationships up until that point? Like, were you dating at the time of the accident? I was not dating, no. And I, I told myself too that I would take the first year and learn to do it on my own. And that was probably the hardest decision that I made because there was days when I just wanted somebody there, mm-hmm. just wanted that support. And um, I, I got out of a, a long-term relationship probably eight months before that. And so, yeah, it was... It was, it was good in some ways. You know, they say that it's like a huge number, like 80% of people that go through trauma together don't end up together mm-hmm. when recovery is done, right? Just because mm-hmm. it's a lot for both these people. So I'm really glad I didn't have to put someone through that. Yeah. I'm interested in what kept you going. I mean, I'm trying to place myself in some of these experiences that you've had. And imagining what it would have been in the case of just the five months through the hospital, you know, you're looking at going into the Paralympics and you have that goal that you're going to work towards and you're super ambitious about that. But I can imagine, Michelle, that you had some really, really dark days. How did you move through those? Yeah, well, I still have my dark days. Yeah. Um, But I think for me, it was a couple things. One, I knew that I was given a second chance you know, because I severed my femoral artery and I was bleeding out, like normally like 10 to 15 minutes before you bleed out, but I lived 23 and, you know, everyone kept saying like, you're a miracle to be alive. So I really took that to heart. And after I talked to my, the police officer that was on my scene, who had been an officer for 20 years, and he, he had told me that I was in the worst shape he's ever seen someone before where they've survived. I was just like, you know what? I'm not taking this chance, this second chance for granted. I'm going to make the best of this. And for me, the second thing was um, the loss of my business partner and one of my closest friends in 2009. He actually died in a motorcycle accident. And he he was just such a 
such a motivating person. And he sent me this email not long before he passed. And it said that when you feel your worst and you try your hardest, that's when you gain the most. Mm. And so that just constantly went through my head. Like I'm at my worst, but I'm trying my hardest. And you know what? I'm going to gain so much out of this. That's an incredible perspective. When it comes to support networks, did you feel surrounded? Did you feel supported through your dark days? And, and even now? Um, yeah, I did. My family did a really good job of being there at the beginning, but you know, they have lives that they had to get back to. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was tough because it almost felt like everybody was like, okay, like you've recovered and you're good and you know, you're fine. Like you have such a positive attitude. And I think because of that, I didn't necessarily have that support when I actually started to process my accident about two years after and the loss of a limb, which is grieving, you know, you're grieving, a life you used to know and your abilities to get around and how easy things were. And so I didn't have that when I I needed it. And I think because of that, I learned to be really independent Mm -hmm. and it is an attribute and it is a curse sometimes. Mm -hmm. I, I recognize that there would be so much grief involved in losing a limb and kind of grieving the life that you'd had prior and the abilities that you would have had prior. But yeah, I hadn't factored in the time frame there that two years after your accident, you started grieving through that. Yeah, it's people don't really think about the consequences when you throw everything into one goal, you know, from your from your hospital bed. And I didn't, of course, I didn't think about it either. I was so set on going to the Paralympics that when I had the opportunity to talk to a social worker in the long term or, or the rehab facility that I was in, I was like, no, I don't need it. I'm good. Like I'm going to Paralympics. I'm overcome this. I know that I've lost a leg. I'm cool. And then I started to have flashbacks of my accident, which I hadn't remembered at all about two years in. And then I was like, okay, now I have PTSD. And now that my first Paralympics are, um, it was just after, so it was two and a half years roughly after my accident when I had competed in my first Paralympics then it was it was tough you know post-Olympic blues that they talk about combined with PTSD and flashbacks it was hell it really was yeah all at once I can imagine though that joining into the Paralympics you would have been so surrounded by people that just even without speaking they just got it you would have felt just so understood Yeah, for sure. There was times where I knew that I had that support, but at the same time, like everyone is fighting their own battles. Right. And so there's almost this like unspoken struggle that I think some of us, not all of us, but some of us are really battling and you know, you, you want to be tough. You don't want to go to everybody about your problems and there's this stigma around the Paralympics and how we're all like such strong, unbreakable people. But the truth is, we're just like everybody else. And we have our days and we have our moments and we have our struggles, especially those of us that have went through significant trauma. So pre-recording, you had shared with me a recent diagnosis. Are you able to elaborate a little bit on that? That's another huge pivot moment. Yeah, for sure. So when I got into my accident, I hit the guardrail head first, which caused a 
brain injury that wasn't visible on scans, like it did not cause brain bleeding. So they saw it more as brain bruising that would go away. eventually. And then throughout my career, I had multiple grade three and grade four concussions, as well as the impact that you take every day when you fall and when you crash, you know, 150 days on snow a year combined with six years as a full-time athlete, there's a lot of impact. And often people think that a concussion will come from just hitting your head directly, but your spine is attached to your brain. And so by simply falling, that can lead to brain damage. So after passing out, I was in a spin class and I blacked out and I went to the doctor or the hospital, like right after, you know, COVID was in Canada and everything was kind of shutting down. Um, I went to the the hospital and they did a a CAT scan and they're like, oh, you're good. Like, well, I'm not good. Like, Mm. I'm having numbness, like, my motor function is changing. Something is definitely wrong. So, I did a bunch of tests, was tested for ALS, MS, all of this. And after consulting with a doctor down in the States and and doing a bunch of testing, um, I was diagnosed with an unconfirmed, because again, they can't diagnose this um, until they cut into your brain, Uh, but CTE, which is now becoming quite common in athletes that will take those constant repetitive impacts. And so you were mentioning pre-recording that you are in stage two of four. Can you elaborate a bit on the stages? Yeah. So stage one is you're going to see your headaches and a bit of short-term memory loss, you know, that anxiety, that depression, whereas stage two, you're starting to see your motor functions really being affected. Uh, Your short-term memory is, you know, struggling yeah, the little things like I've, I've had moments where I walked out of a hotel when I was in Golden and I was heading to Alberta and I had no idea where I was for a solid minute. Um, I forgot to how to braid my hair the other day. So it's slowly moving more into like the mental health side. So severe depression, anxiety, there can be aggression. Then you go to stage three, which is, you know, everything is just that much more noticeable, I would think. And then stage four is full-blown dementia. And is there any indication uh, with the people that they have done the testing on that would indicate how rapidly this can happen? It's really tough to say, you know, there's, and again, that's why, like, I can't really speak to much of it because the research is so new. But, you know, I was told that, the progression, like as long as I'm staying healthy, it potentially won't progress for a while. I don't even know if they're really seeing people in stage four very often um, because of this, but there's, again, so many people that are probably not diagnosed. So it's, it's a tough one. Um, It's why I'm, I'm making the move back to Calgary so I can be closer to doctors so we can continue the research. And I am more than happy to be a guinea pig for, for these neurologists and these doctors to, you know, to try and, and to get the treatment or support or even resources needed for all of these athletes that down the road will be diagnosed with this. Mm -hmm. I have a question. When you're taking on all of this new information, and a lot of it's really heavy, it's it's life-altering, life-changing stuff, how do you look after your mental health? What does self-care and looking after yourself look like? 
Yeah, for me, I have definitely struggled with that, but I found ways to overcome, you know, the anxiety and the depression when I have it. I think when I, you know, I have days where I don't want to get a bed, mm-hmm. out of bed. And when I have those days, I just embrace it. Mm-hmm. I will take a day and I will stay in bed, but then that's where it ends. I need to get myself out of bed and it's tough. I have to force myself. I have to drag myself out of bed, but I give myself pep talks a lot. Uh, I take baths. I think baths for me have been so important. It just allows me to shut my brain off and meditate. Um, I listen to a lot of audiobooks and music and I, you know, I try and, and find ways to laugh, whether it's watching a funny show on Netflix or getting together with my friends, which has been really hard mm-hmm. the last year. Uh, but that in sports, sports will always be probably my number one thing, just having fun, you know, snowmobiling, wake surfing, whatever it is, but being outside that, and they say that, you know, fresh air is actually really good for your stress levels and your hormones and all of that. So I just try and get outside and it's, it's really hard sometimes when I, I'm in those lows, but mm-hmm. you know, um, <laughs> when you just mentioned something about laughing, It's so funny to me how on social media you can, whether it's just a written comment or something that someone posts, I can tell you have an exceptional sense of humor and I can imagine that, that it does carry you forward and on shitty days. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny when my mental health is good, I am the most ridiculous person. I'm so sarcastic and like, I'm on fire. Like my, when I first met my boyfriend, Billy, he's like, yeah, like I'm pretty witty, you know, I always have the best comebacks and stuff to the guys in the shop. And I just razz him all day. And he just doesn't know what to say. And I'm like, hmm, you yeah, thought you were up, good. Billy. Yeah, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's good. And like in front of his friends, they're like, whoa, yeah. this is awesome. Oh, I love yeah. that. And I also love that you have Billy, you know, to support you through this and just to be that person. It's so nice to have a rock through your shitty days for sure. Yeah, he's pretty great. Uh, you also mentioned audiobooks. What are you currently listening to or reading? So I am listening for the second time to a Lori Gottlieb book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. I suggest everybody listens to it. It is so amazing. It is a a psychologist perspective, like a therapist perspective, but she like tells it's in a storyline. Like I'm all for self-help books, but I find them really hard to follow along because it's just the same stuff over and over Mm -hmm. again, right? That motivational stuff. Whereas I love when there's a storyline and uh, yeah, it's, it's a great book. I'm listening to another book called breathe. And then I have my like, Nicholas Sparks. Oh yeah. You know, like cheesy romance books that I forever will like the second there's a new one, I'm like, yes, I am buying this. <laughs> I love that. So what's your biggest takeaway from maybe you should talk to oh, someone? There is, oh my gosh, there's so many, but there was a chapter that I listened to the other day and it was about how traumas like how we're really good as people to suppress those traumas and to not want to talk about them and then you know once you open up and you talk about them then it just like opens a whole new world and it's really really tough like to actually do it she had this client who 
had a son who had passed away in a car accident. He was the only one that was like severely injured. Um, and then he died in hospital. And so he was just like, you know, he had this attitude and he wouldn't cut her off and he wouldn't embrace therapy. And then finally one day he just opens up and talks about his son and, it was just, it was such a big milestone for him. So, you know, for me, it's like, okay, if there is something bothering me, I gotta talk about it. And I use my platforms. I use my social media to talk about it. Whether people think that I'm airing my dirty laundry or using my platforms as my diary, I, I, I don't care. Yeah. And I think more than anything nowadays, social media, blessing, curse, whatever you would want to call it, I really wholeheartedly believe that on the positive side of things, it's helping people feel less alone and it's starting really crucial conversations and introspection, right? Because you could hear or read something and be like, huh, interesting. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. And, you know, for me, especially now, like I'm opening up quite a bit about my struggle with suicide, which has been something I've dealt with since I was 13. And it is one of the symptoms of CTE as well. Um, so, you know, these, unfortunately, these athletes are committing suicide and they're donating their brain to science. And so it's like, we more than ever, like without being a trigger for anybody, like I want to talk about mental health. I want to talk about how people, there's a stigma around it and people are getting to the point where they think that taking their own lives is easier than talking about it. And that just breaks my heart and I get it and I understand and I've been there. But it's so important, as uncomfortable as it makes people feel, I'm just going to keep talking about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, no, I'm with you on that. I think what you're doing, and I think that opening up about that, because I know that you've, you've got a tattoo um, just to kind of keep you going, eh? Yeah. And I think that opening up about that, I mean, I'm, I'm an educator, and I work with some teens that have had some really tough stories and experiences. And when you hear them talk about it, whether I've been there or not, I really wholeheartedly, again, believe that the people that have that genuine experience and can talk from a place of empathy and knowing are the ones that really need to speak out and to share. So it's more genuine. Yeah. yeah. And it's, Bell talks about it once one day a year right and mm-hmm. good good on bell that's amazing but where's the constant support and like their suicide hotlines which is great but there's still especially with men there's still such this this big stigma that you need to be strong and so i haven't to be honest i haven't completely opened up about it mm-hmm. i haven't put it out there yet like i've yeah. been very close twice in the last three years and i i made videos both times and you know i I look back at it and I'm like, wow, this is such a dark place. Um, post Olympics again, mm-hmm. post Paralympics and finishing fourth and thinking that I failed my country and that's a heavy burden to carry. Mm-hmm. So I think that now that I'm in a good place, it's like, Hey, I need to need to share my story and mm-hmm. yeah, I'm probably going to lose followers, but I don't really care. No, then they shouldn't be there anyway. That's how I see it. Yeah. 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 Oh, I could talk to you all day. Okay. I want to ask you my three safe haven style questions. You ready? Okay. Yeah. What are you most proud of? Um, my Paralympic journey, even though it did not end the way I wanted it to end. And I'm still butthurt about how I finished in 2018. I'm just so proud of myself that I got there and everyone told me that 2014 wasn't possible because of you know, all the trauma that my body endured and my mental space, but, um, I did it. So, you know, I went into the 2018 games ranked 
third overall in the world. I have 14 World Cup medals. I'm going to travel the world. Mm-hmm. I'm one of the best female para snowboarders. So I'm going to take that and I'm going to allow that to make me proud instead of disappointed that it finished the way it did. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What would you like to be known for? Um, you know, ask me three years ago and I would have said being a Paralympian, but truth is I just want to be known for, I wouldn't say necessarily someone with a disability, but someone that has made the most of their situation and just an advocate, an advocate for, for those people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm going to pause there. I, instead of asking you my last question right away, I would love for you to share a little bit about the work that you do in advocating, talking about able-bodied versus disabled. And can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, like I, I use the term able-bodied because that's what we use within sport. But truth is, I don't really, like, I don't want people to feel like we're taking away from the fact that they are able-bodied. Um, I do try and see us all as similar, but maybe we've learned to adapt Mm -hmm. a bit more. I am a medical equipment supplier. That is my full-time job. And so I work every day providing equipment to people with disabilities, whether it be Huntington's or Parkinson's or autism. So I get to see, you know, the struggle with the funding as well as the lack of sports available to everybody with limitations. So I, you know, I try and advocate for what I can. For me, the biggest thing has been sport. Um, I helped create the sport of adaptive wake surfing as a fully sanctioned sport. So I'm being, you know, like I just, I want to start doing more like, this is unfair. I want to change this. And I, I'm, I'm going to change this. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I can't put all of this on my plate. Mm-hmm. But, you know, down the road, I would like to see microprocessor knees covered by more insurance companies. And, Um, the government and more funding towards people that are disabled and need equipment. Mm. And there's so many there. I don't even know where to start. So right now I'm, I'm I'm writing them all down and I'm figuring out where, which direction I want to go next. Yeah. Amazing. No, you're doing incredible things. Okay. And if you had a message for everyone listening, what would it be? No, I feel like going back to Arthur's quote, but I recently said this on a podcast and another podcast and it's resonated with me, but there's a lot of fulfillment and gratitude that comes out of pushing forward when you're at your absolute lowest, Mm -hmm. right? Like there is, there is beauty and trauma. We just need to find a way to see it. So I'm going to pick something out of that one too, actually. I rarely do this, but you've just said something else that's really interesting because being able to push forward. So I know that since the 2018 Olympic Games, you've had some exceptionally dark days, um, you know, contemplating suicide and such as well. So what kept you going? Um, well, I had a major identity crisis after the Games. I decided to retire. And then I found out that my dad wasn't my biological father, which was a huge shock to me. So I, you know, I think for me, like a lot of it was so my dog my dog was just there and she was exactly where she needed to be and you know I I say that I may not have a lot of support and I learned to be independent but we talked about the extra heartbeat in the house right having her there was pretty amazing um Mm -hmm. I'd say that she she probably saved my life more than once Mm -hmm. 
And then just knowing that, you know, I go back, I always go back to that second chance. It was like, okay, hey, wasn't supposed to live that day. And you look at the history of severing that artery and probably where I should have fallen into that, to that research. And from most accounts, I probably should have been dead. Mm-hmm. So I just think about that. And I'm like, why, why am I taking this, this for granted? I, I can't, I can't do that. And then, you know, I think about everybody that was in my family and stuff too. And mm-hmm. my family, and my friends, and I don't want to cause pain. I've been through a lot of pain in my life and I, I would hate to have to put that on someone else. Mm-hmm. Michelle, thank you so much for sharing. It, it means so yeah, much that your time, your vulnerability, just your stories and messages. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was a great experience. Michelle, I cannot thank you enough for hanging out with me virtually, of course, on the safe haven and for opening up so vulnerably, sharing your stories with me and my listeners. It means so much. And if we are able to get out on our sleds together this year, that would honestly make a dream of mine come true. To everyone listening, I recognize the privilege that comes with my platform and I am committed to creating a safe, brave and inclusive space with intention. If this episode has hit you right in the heart or inspired you in any way, please screenshot the screen while you're listening, send it to your friends, and share it in your Instagram stories. Please be sure to tag us at the Safe Haven Podcast so that we can personally thank you for it. If you're able to leave a review or leave a juicy five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, that really helps this podcast grow. For more great podcasts, check out FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com, and I will talk to you next week.